The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. All right, we're at about 40% equals colors in the congregation today. I like it, but I hope in two weeks we had a chance to do better, right? Woo! Yeah. So when, um, when I was a kid, like a little kid, six, seven, eight years old, I hated the local news. Sorry, Teresa. <laughs> if you don't know, one of our singers in our band works as a producer for the local news. It was nothing personal. And I wasn't exactly the target demographic at six, seven, eight years old. I hated it because my parents would put it on every night as we were getting ready for dinner. And the stories always were bad. Not all of them, but the ones that were bad were the ones that stuck with me. They scared me. It wasn't even so much, at that age for me, the violence, shootings, that stuff kind of went over my head because I didn't even understand it. It seemed, though, like every single day there was a fire. It seemed like every single day there was an image of a house, sometimes neighbors, a family, sometimes deaths, kids. And that I could relate to. The idea that one day, out of nowhere, my home would be up in flames, myself and my family in danger. The safest place in my life, gone. I remember crying after watching some of those local newscasts and not feeling like I could process those feelings completely. I developed a bunch of habits that probably annoyed the crud out of my parents (laughs) because I just kept being stuck in that fear. All of these rituals, especially at night when I would go to sleep, right, and nobody was keeping watch over the home, I would make sure that the quilts on my bed was far enough away from the side wall that the outlet couldn't spark something, things that didn't make sense but I was just a kid. It was hard for me to hear about the things that were going on in the world when they overwhelmed my little circuits. That is all that trauma is. Trauma is a big word. It seems very clinical, and it is used clinically. But trauma is really anything that overwhelms our ability to cope. Anything that overwhelms our ability to cope. It's not often how we think about trauma. And there's a reason for that, actually. It's because the original definition that the American Psychiatric Association used in the 80s when post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, was first recognized The original definition that they used back then of trauma was an event that happened to a person that was outside of the range of normal human experiences. And I think we think about it that way still, right? Outside the range of normal human experiences. But that begs the question, what is normal? And who's normal, right? There's an author named Glennon Doyle Melton, who I know some of you have heard of. She wrote a memoir called Love Warrior a few years ago. And in her memoir, she talks about 
finding herself at 17 years old in an inpatient psychiatric hospital for folks who, like her, are engaging in self-harm, whether that's, in her case, an eating disorder, bulimia, whether it's cutting, whether it's drug and alcohol abuse. She and all these other teenagers and young people are all together in this hospital, and they're talking about what led them to engage in these kinds of self-harm, what makes it so hard for them on a daily basis to get through the day. And she just racks her brain the whole time she's there for a trauma to explain it all. Right? She thinks that if she can identify maybe a repressed memory or something that happened to her in her past that would explain why she does this, that that would be the key to her healing. But Glennon begins to realize one night as she talks with her roommate, Mary, that maybe instead of being broken by some horrific, inhuman, unimaginable event, maybe some of the kids in that hospital are a little bit like the canaries that her grandfather used to tell her about. The canaries in a coal mine, right? Many of you know where this comes from. My grandfather was a coal miner in northeast PA. The mines were dangerous places to work. There were invisible toxins that you couldn't sense with the human body in the air. But a canary's body was built to be sensitive enough to those toxins. That If the canary stopped singing, the miners knew that they had to get out, that it was dangerous. Glennon started to think. She'd always heard the story and thought about that poor canary and thought about how weak and vulnerable it was. But she said, you know what, maybe we're like those canaries and we're just sensitive to the things in the air that are slowly killing us all. Maybe we're not weak. Maybe we're actually a little bit heroic. Maybe the way we are built, that vulnerability, is actually a gift that points the way to save everyone. Now, there are different kinds of trauma. And again, I think because of the way that idea has been introduced into our society, most of us think of personal trauma probably first, right? The kinds of things that we directly experience ourselves. There's also something called secondary trauma. I know some of you know he's here today. Rodney Rittenberg did a documentary called Caregivers about the effects of secondary trauma. They uh, follow EMTs and nurses and fire and rescue folks, people who've witnessed violent acts. Secondary trauma is just a different kind of trauma. It's also very real. It's the kind of trauma that affects people who maybe didn't directly experience an event but were close enough to it or saw enough of it and therefore, we're also affected by it. And then there's a third kind that we maybe talk about even less. It's called collective trauma. Collective trauma happens when there is an event that overwhelms a whole community's ability to cope. If you look up collective trauma and read a little bit about it online, like maybe I did this week, You'll see some of the examples show that all of these can actually be working in a person at once, unfortunately. There is a story about a community in the 1960s that was in a valley in West Virginia, 
and there was a terrible industrial accident that meant that a whole bunch of industrial waste essentially became a flood that was like a river or a bay being undammed, and it took out an entire small town. The people who survived experienced a lot of personal trauma from their memories, a lot of secondary trauma from what they witnessed around them. And the whole community had to heal from a sense of collective trauma. The idea that everything they knew was gone, all of the pathways and normal ways of relating didn't make sense to them anymore. Those kinds of stories of collective trauma used to be a lot more rare, or at least localized, right? If something like that happened to a community you were a part of, you might experience it. But when I say used to, I mean like 200 years ago, right? A lot has changed. A lot has changed in the last 20 years about how we interact with the world and what we see and what we experience. And now we experience those kinds of traumas collectively every day, sometimes in maybe smaller ways, like kids watching about fires on the news, and also in huge ones. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed yesterday and I stopped to watch a video of a woman's harrowing account of escaping from North Korea. And then I poured myself some breakfast cereal. (laughs) This is what our lives are often like these days. And if you can handle one more addition to that complexity of those three different levels of trauma, some of us are also canaries. Right? We all have different settings. We all have different settings for how we respond to those kinds of things, just naturally in the way that we're built, who we are. The newer definition that psychiatrists and psychologists now use of trauma recognizes this difference. Trauma is no longer defined quite as simply as an event outside the range of a normal human experience. It's an interaction between the intensity of a difficult event and the person, their own circumstances, their own vulnerabilities, their own capacity for resilience. An event that might cause a trauma response for one person might not for another, and that's okay. It's a great example of this. Sometimes it helps to think in terms of the physical trauma, right? We're all probably a little more used to, unfortunately, because of the stigma in our world around mental health, we're sometimes more used to thinking about our bodies and physical health. When I was a a chaplain at the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania for a summer, I worked in the trauma ward. And so I saw a lot of the people who came into the trauma ward were from things you might expect, car accidents, violent events. But a lot of people came because they fell. And a physical fall is a perfect example of that interaction, how trauma can be trauma for one person and literally something that someone else might walk away from. It's that interaction, a person whose body is worn down, whether because of another chronic illness or maybe damage from substance use or just the natural deterioration of living on this planet, right? A fall for them might be very different. The trauma nurses... And the doctors would never stand there, though, and say, you're too sensitive. Buck up. I could walk away from this. Of course not. 
they would recognize and respect when they saw stress in the body that exceeded the person's ability to cope with it. And in that situation, the only thing that will keep the trauma from winning is help from outside the body. I um, was thinking about a story from a few years ago that to me is a story about the impact of this kind of ubiquitous collective trauma. And it's actually kind of a funny story about how we humans are pretty remarkable. We find our ways to be resilient and cope with the world around us all the time. Story from when I worked in the admissions office at Swarthmore College, which some of you know I did for about three years. Swarthmore is a very elite, expensive, beautiful school nearby in Delaware County. And yet we would do this thing once a year where we would invite students on campus for a diversity weekend of sorts, trying to make up for the hundred years or so when they only admitted rich white people to the college. They were now bringing in students who were from underrepresented groups on campus to come check it out, to hear about what this college experience at this place could be like for them. It was one of my favorite weekends of the year, every year. It broke up the dominant culture on campus in good ways, healthy ways, I thought. And we would bring a couple hundred students from all over the country, locally and far away, students from racial and ethnic backgrounds that weren't very well represented on our campus, and a lot of first-generation-to-college students, a lot of students who were coming from low-income backgrounds whose parents didn't have a chance to go to any college, let alone an elite private institution. This is just to give you a sense of the campus. This is the amphitheater at Swarthmore College. It's set into the edge of the Crum Woods, about 200 acres of woodlands that the college owns with creeks and hiking trails. This is where graduation is held every single year outside. This is on every brochure, trust me, <laughs> of Swarthmore. And I show you that because my favorite moment, I think, in my whole time working at Swarthmore happened at the end of one of these diversity weekends when all the students were coming back to the main lobby on the main building of the campus to check out, to get their luggage, to catch their shuttles back to the airport. And this one girl came in and just kind of flopped down on the chair, right? She probably hadn't slept in three days. A 17-year-old away at college from her parents visiting and checking out life, right? And I said, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How was your time here? And she said, I can't believe y'all just own some woods. <laughs> I want to put that across this, right? I can't, I can't believe y'all just own some woods to be on the brochure along with everything else, right? I could totally relate to how she felt. I think for those of us born into or lived under different conditions than it's like to live on a campus like that, it is a resilient response, right, to come up against some relief, some refuge that really is her saying what I heard. I can't believe it could be this good. I can't believe I could be someone here in this beautiful, beautiful place. And her story reminded me of a similar and much sadder story. Back in 2015, This American Life on NPR, did a story called Three Miles. Are you going to listen to this? About two schools in the Bronx. I really recommend it. Three Miles was a story about two high schools, both in the Bronx, New York, three miles away from each other. On the left, 
University Heights High School, a public school in the poorest congressional district in America. And on the right, the Fieldston School, an 18-acre campus where tuition is $43,000 a year. Yeah, I see some of your faces. <laughs> More than many people pay for college, right, for high school. There was a program that two teachers at each of these schools got started. They would do field trips, get all the kids from one school on a bus, and bring them to the other school. I feel like I could have told you this was a bad idea. <laughs> they had good intentions, though, really good intentions. They wanted to build bridges, right? They wanted their kids to have a chance to cross boundaries. They wanted to inspire both sets of kids to see the world in a more full and whole way, right? To see the world in different ways through the eyes of people with different experiences. All wonderful intentions. And for the most part, this program was really strong and successful. But one time, the first time a particular group of kids that year got on the bus at University Heights, drove three miles, right, probably 10, 15 minutes, and got off the bus at the Fieldston School. There was a girl named Melanie. She got off that bus and she looked around and she lost it. She started screaming, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Take us back. I want to go home. Nobody else was reacting that way. Her teachers tried to calm her down, her friends, her classmates. I said, come on, Melanie, you, you, you know, you live in New York, you know what this is like. But she couldn't handle it. There was nothing unique about that situation at those schools. There's nothing about those two schools that isn't true anywhere else in our country or in our world. But part of the reason I found that story so sad is because Melanie is not wrong. She's not wrong to feel how she feels. What she saw might have affected her differently than her peers, but she was awakening to a deep collective trauma that we walk around asleep to all the time. The fact that we are all worthy of this. We are all worthy of that beauty of that 18-acre campus. But Melanie and everyone she knew, everybody in her world, everyone she'd ever loved, had never seen it before, had been denied it for so long. She didn't know how good it could be just three miles down the road. We're all worthy of good care. That's what we believe here. We're all worthy of refuge. And we are so depressingly used to the opposite. Some of us in ways like this, some of us in all kinds of other ways in our lives. I wish I had the 10-point plan to create this kind of exceptional environment for all people, right? If I did, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> So I don't know exactly how we get there, but I know how much damage it does when we just accept the alternative. When we get stuck in these traps, pretending that 
you know, maybe not all of us are worthy of it, that people should be happy with what they can get. When we allow that to just be in the air and we maybe pretend it's not there or we don't feel like it affects us, then we are ignoring the canaries in our midst. And that is slowly destroying us all. In this world we live in now, we have a new kind of connectivity in all of our hard stories and all of our pain from all these ways that we are interconnected and in touch with each other. And it can feel overwhelming. Can we recognize this collective trauma for what it is and not harden ourselves to it, but soften ourselves to it? And can this connectivity maybe from that in our pain also become a new connectivity in our healing? Can we accept some help Maybe from outside our body, right? Our way of knowing, our way of doing things. Maybe the people who don't see it the way we do can be a gift to us. I think about what happened here last week, that if you were here last week, you know my car broke down and I missed it, but we dedicated a child here. The newest child in our community, Avery Grace, the daughter of Teresa and Kelly Omelak. When I think sometimes about people who are so new to the world, Avery was born in November. But imagine, one day she'll be your age. Imagine her when she's your age. She's going to have a really different experience of a photo that's hard for us to see, maybe because we lived through it. This is a collective trauma. This is one of the big ones. I think everyone here in this room that I can see was conscious and has a memory of this moment. We can all get in touch with how it felt, not just intellectually to know what was happening, but we remember being in that moment. We have an embodied memory of whatever it is for you. I know for me it's like sickness to my stomach. It's anxiety in my head. It's worry and fear of what's changing. But little Avery Grace will not feel any of that when she looks at this photo. How do you feel when you look at a picture of maybe the Pearl Harbor bombing or when you hear stories about the Great Depression and what people had to do to survive? Avery will probably see this for the first time in a history book, right? And thank God. Thank God she will never remember the moment in this photo and will never feel the same way looking at it that any of us do. And we can see clearly, right, that it's not because she's tougher than us. She's just lived a whole different life with whole different experiences. And that's not a problem. That's a gift. We don't want her to feel that way. At the root of every single grown person's desire to build a world where our children, right, our collective children, don't have to experience the same pain as us, it is one of the most universal things I hear from parents and non-parents alike about what we want for the next generation. It's a gift that she won't feel that. And so what gifts might she have to give to us to help us heal? To resist the temptation that we will find in ourselves because of our collective pain and what we've experienced to say that's just how the world is, Avery. 
It's hopeless. War is a fact of life. Instead of asking, maybe along with her, the question of how can things be different. I heard a story that I'll close with about this in a little bit more of a day-to-day kind of way. From a podcast called Fortification. It's a podcast hosted by a woman named Caitlin Breedlove, where she interviews activists, advocates, people who are engaged in movements for social change in some way in the world. But it's not just about their policies and their activism. It's actually about what sustains them spiritually, the spiritual sustenance that keeps them going. She was interviewing a particular activist, and it wasn't actually the activist story. It was Caitlin who was reflecting back, and she said, you know what? I've done that. I have had people come in to work with me who will point out things that are not really going well, who will point out things that are not really in keeping with our values. And she said, I hear myself saying to them, oh, honey, that's cute, right? I hear my own jadedness. I hear myself saying, that's adorable, but it's never going to be that way. What is that in me, she says, that makes me do that? Why am I communicating to them because of my own hard shell that we shouldn't even try, right? Why am I propping up a culture that doesn't support any of us then to heal and shift things for the future? What if we all could see that the places where we have a hard shell, where we have a scab that covers our wounds, those places might be the doorways to all of our healing together? Can we accept the grace of a different experience that comes from a different place? Instead of saying, that's just how it is, Can we find ways to be refuge for each other by allowing ourselves to accept refuge? By saying, you're right, that does hurt. That's hurt me for a long time. Let me tell you about it. And when we hurt, whether it's because of our own personal or our collective pain that's been too much to hold, that we've walled or numbed ourselves off to, can we all practice that self-compassion and self-forgiveness that's necessary for us to say, I didn't want this, and no one deserves this? Maybe by accepting what has happened enough to receive care, to take care Maybe then we could build another way. And one day, whether it's us or those who come after us, we might find ourselves saying, I can't believe it could be this good. I can't believe it could be this good. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? God, whose other name is love. Love with a capital L. The kind that we teach and hope for and have faith in in this community. 
a kind of love that doesn't leave anyone out. Help us have faith in this capital L love. In those moments when we see so much evidence of the opposite around us. Help us believe that just because there are things we don't see doesn't mean that they don't exist. It doesn't mean that they're not possible. That we may not see them one day. Strengthen our faith in that, if anything. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts. We say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.